0: As we look at Hebrews chapter 10, and we look at this, the third commitment, the third statement in our membership covenant, can't help but think about how our society today is, is facing a loneliness epidemic really like we haven't seen in any other generation. It's amazing that we can be so connected online, through the internet, uh, through social media, uh, through the phone. I mean, every one of us has a little mini-computer in our pocket, it seems. Yet our culture is greatly struggling with loneliness. In fact, one report dated back in August of 2019, um, just highlighting a few things from it, Uh, out of a survey of more than 20,000 adults that were aged 18 and older... It said an astonishing 43% of participants, that's two in five Americans, sometimes or always feel isolated from others and that their relationships are not meaningful. Uh, Additionally, 27% rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand and connect with them. Uh, Only 53% of the participants felt that they have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. This is society. If we take that statistic, then around 47% of of even individuals in this room feel isolated, lonely. It's amazing, back when um, I was in college, which in my mind isn't that, that long ago, 1999 to 2003, but... Uh, The decades start adding on. Um, Visiting Rachel's sister who went to uh, Penn State Law School uh, several years ago, I was shocked. Everybody I saw had their heads down, earphones in, and were looking at their phones. I was like, man, how do you ask people nowadays if you're in college where the bathroom is without feeling really awkward? That's an awkward enough question. But everybody seems to be connected, but there's no real connection. For Christians as well, loneliness can be a real struggle, but here's the difference. Loneliness should not be definitive of our lives because through Christ, not only have we been reconciled to God, but we've been joined together with one another to share in a deep Spiritual fellowship. In other words, like the title of my sermon today, we are in this together. Or at least we should be. And while I recognize that, that you can be sitting here in these chairs and listening to this sermon and be just as lonely as, you, as if you were the only person in this room, because being around people doesn't mean you are not lonely This should not be the case when we meet together as God's people. Again, we are in this together. And that means just as we share in Christ's life, so we are to share in each other's lives. And that's why in our membership covenant, in the third bullet point commitment that is stated, it says this, we will seek to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, realizing our need of one another for the encouragement and exhortation in the faith that comes from our common bond in Christ. I wonder how many of us, we firmly have in mind that first little phrase, we will seek to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and we think, okay, I should be at church, and when I'm not in church, I feel guilty. But it's void of the context of what the rest of that phrase, uh, sentence says. Realizing our need for one another, for the encouragement and exhortation in the faith that comes from our common bond in Christ. Far too often, being a part of the church simply is having your body somewhere. And that is not being connected to the church. You see, consistent spiritual communion and fellowship together is vital for each church Member, it, it literally is just as necessary to our spiritual lives as breathing is to our physical lives. And this morning in Hebrews 10, and, and, and Dave read verses 19 to 25, we often focus in when we think of of not forsaking the assembly of ourselves, and we're going we're to look at what exactly that phrase means. We often think, when we think of connection to the body, simply of those two or three verses that are found in chapter 10. But this morning I want us to see that this Drawing of you and me together, the necessity for our lives together t- as we walk the Christian faith, it is grounded in something so much deeper than ourselves. This morning, I could give you four reasons why you need to be in church or four, four tips for getting more out of the morning service. But listen, the, those things are all ultimately heart issues, not step issues. This morning, I want us to simply look at chapter 10 and start reading through it. And I'm going to sort of organize it for you and give you some thoughts, but nothing is as powerful as simply reading the pages of Scripture. And we are going to see what exactly Jesus has done for us and how there is such a vital connection between being reunited to God through Christ and being connected to one another. This morning, we are just going to simply look at the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. And maybe today, you feel like you've had anything but good news this week, You're sitting in your seat and you're saying, you know what? I feel awful. I feel disconnected. I feel bored. I feel whatever it is. I feel sick. That should highlight your need for the gospel this morning. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to teach us from His Word as we look at this vital truth once again that we are called to be the church. Let's pray. Lord, would you, as we know you are here in our midst, would you take the the word of God? Would you drive it deeper into our hearts? Lord, would you help there to be hope this morning? Lord, would you, through the work of of the Holy Spirit, would you produce our perspective to be put back on Christ? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring a realization of our need for you and of our need then for one another? God, would you break through the walls that each and every one of us here today are so quick to build up? To think that somehow we are sufficient in and of ourselves. Would you break our self-righteousness this morning? And would you plant the gospel deeper into our hearts? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at three main ideas that chapter 10 is giving us when it comes to the gospel's work in our hearts and it's outworking in our connection with each other. None of this is going to be rocket science, but oh, how we need these reminders and truths today. Number one, if we are called to be the church, we have to recognize that Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice that anyone or anything could ever make for you that would even come close to what Jesus has done for your soul. We know that Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, first of all, because in the Scriptures we see the insufficiency of the law to produce any righteousness within us. In fact, let's look at verse 1. The, the author writes, For since the law has but, a sh- uh, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. They may say, Pastor Adam, what, what is the text saying here? We see here it says, for since the law. Now, the, the, the recipients of, of the book of Hebrews, like I've, I've mentioned to you before as we've looked at Hebrews, they were tempted to forsake Jesus and go back to the law. The pressures were becoming too great. And the whole book of Hebrews is meant to show that Jesus is better than anything the law could produce or anything that was involved in the law. And here the author says the law is but a shadow of the good things to come that word shadow as as one source puts it a shadow is a mere representation of something real a shadow is something fuzzy that you can't quite get a hold of it's not meant to be permanent As soon as the the sun goes down or you you move to a different area, that shadow is gone. The law is simply a shadow of something greater yet to come. It's not the true form, verse 1 says, of these realities or the true image. So the law points to something greater and then we see that this, the law could never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We often hear the, the definition of insanity as doing the same thing every time and expecting different results. Now, the law did serve a definite function to point us to our need for a lasting sacrifice. The law was good so long as it pointed its way forward, but when Jesus came, there was no reason to hold to the law any longer. It was insufficient. It could never make anyone perfect to say, my debt has been paid. As we stop right here, just at verse one, I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we holding to? Expecting to find satisfaction, expecting to find completion, expecting to find some sort of eternal acceptance. Are you looking for it in your spouse? Are you looking for it in your children? Are you even looking for it in your church? Are you looking for it from your employer? Are you looking for it from your friends? Are you looking for it in this earth? Are you looking for it in a political leader? You see, all of the time, while we may not be tempted to go back to Jewish law because that's not our culture, we are tempted to hold on to things that are simply less than. I mean, how foolish is it for us to be clinging to something, a shadow, when Jesus said, uh, God says, the full image of it is here. And that's what these believers were doing. Verse 2 says, "If, if these sacrifices would have made people perfect, it says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? but that's not the case of what happens. Verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Many of you may have heard the phrase the day of atonement. It was one day a year. It's found in Leviticus 16 when all of the Israelites gathered together. It was a solemn day and the, 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 the priests would make sacrifices. The high priest would go into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies to to present the blood from the sacrifice, to cleanse the nation from the year of sin that they had as a people group accumulated. But there was a problem the next year would come. In fact, there was a problem that on that day of atonement, they would simply be reminded of all of those sins that they had committed. And yes, there would be joy that they were taken care of. But next year was coming. The law was insufficient. And then in verse 4 it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What we see here is a form of religiosity, a form of spirituality without the true gospel. How many of you today are holding to a form of spirituality, a form of being religious, and you are not holding to the true gospel? That is what is going to bring rest. That is what is going to bring hope. But when you are holding to an empty outward religion that is void of the gospel's work in the heart, it is simply going to tire you and exhaust you because there is no rest. It's do, do, do. As we look at this point of our church membership covenant of of not forsaking the, the, the assembling of ourselves, listen, church connection is simply an outworking of your own spiritual life and heart. It is a fruit. It is not the root. When people become disconnected from the church body, it is because things have been going on for a long time internally that have never been dealt with. You see, the gospel brings inner transformation, not simply outward cleansing. And the law was insufficient to to bring this inward transformation, and yet we hold to the dues and the law of religiosity every day in our lives. And we wonder why we're bored of Christianity. We wonder why it doesn't seem to be Working, quote unquote, for us. But there's good news. Not only do we see the insufficiency of the law, uh, Jesus shows us the sufficiency of a new way. That is why in verse 5, the author says, Consequently, or because these sacrifices could not fully achieve forgiveness of sins This is a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. David says these words. And we see that, that the true David, the ultimate David, that would be the heir, the offspring of David, Jesus Christ, these words are fulfilled. You see, it's not that, that, that God says, I don't want your sacrifices, or else He would have never place them in the law to have a a relationship with his people that God could dwell in their midst. But what this passage is saying is, first of all, that empty sacrifices God has no desire for. And secondly, when the true sacrifice has come, there are no other substitute sacrifices that bring God pleasure. You see, so many times in our our life we can say, God, I will follow you here, but I don't want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. God, I'll kind of look to you when things seem to be easy or going my way, but I'm not going to truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, you are not looking to that once for all sacrifice. We are trying to have our form of religiosity. You see, God's ultimate desire was not to have sheep uh, with their necks slit and the blood pouring out or goats or bulls or rams. Those things served a purpose to point to Jesus and God's ultimate desire was for Jesus to come In a human body, as verse 7 says, to do your will, O God. It has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament as it is written in the scroll of the book. You see, there is a sufficiency of a new way because Jesus has come to provide that new way. And not only is this a new way, it is a better way. Look at uh, uh, verse verse uh, eight. When he said, "You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings," and then note in parentheses, it says, "These are according to the law." Then he added, "Behold, I have come to do your will." You see, Jesus was that willing sacrifice who gave willingly and freely of himself. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. You see, a final sacrifice has been offered. It would be foolish for these Jewish Christians to go back to the law when Jesus has come and has done away with the law. He's fulfilled it. They would be looking to something far inferior. And again, not to be too repetitious, but we do that every day. And you know what we try to do? We try to do jumping jacks to try to get people on board with the Christian faith. To try to get people on board with being committed to the church. And the reality is they have simply not and we have simply failed to see the greatness of the new way that Jesus has paved. See, it's according to verse 10, it's by the will of God and the willingness of Jesus that we have been sanctified in Christ. Verse 10 says, and by that will, we have been sanctified. That reminds us of verse 1, that those sacrifices were offered every year. They could never make perfect those who draw near. But then in verse 10, by one single offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, we have been sanctified. We've been set apart to God through Christ. So now we can say, God, we have been restored to you. We've been set apart for you not to live after ourselves or the flesh any longer, but to look to our once for all sacrifice. That means when you get that bad news on the phone, when you get that email, when you you, uh, get that bad news at work, when you're facing those inner turmoils of broken relationships and of your own constant daily falling to sin, you remember that through Christ you've been set apart to God, not through anything within you. This is a good news that cannot be shaken Verses 11 to 14, uh, the, the, the author here further expounds on this one-time sacrifice for sins. Verse 11 shows us the unending nature of sacrifices. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, the author here is saying, okay, first century Christian, Let's think about this. You want to go back to the law. You're tempted to give in to the external pressure. You're thinking you need to add something to what what Jesus has done and who he is. Maybe Jesus isn't enough. Okay, let's think about this. Let's not only talk about the day of atonement that was once a year. Let's talk about every day of life under the law every day there were sacrifices for sin that could never take away those sins. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, it says that, or excuse me, Exodus 29, verse 38, it says, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. These were burnt offerings that would have to occur every single day. On top of that, you would have the individuals going to the priest to offer individual sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings. On top of what the nation had, what, what the people had to do as a nation, you see the unending nature of sacrifices is highlighted in verse eleven. Uh, first of all, because they were offered daily, there was no ending. But secondly, because of the priest himself always stands daily. In other words, the work was never done. What is one of the most exciting things, the most uh, refreshing things you can do after a long day of work? Or maybe you're working on a house project. Or you're working um, on something, uh, some changes to the interior of your home or whatever it is. You sit down and say, it's done. And you admire the work. The priests could never do that. They stood daily. Then verse 12, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. While the priest could never sit and say, the work is finished, Christ is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. Verse 13, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. The unending nature of sacrifices here is contrasted with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. He has sat down Ephesians 1 and verse 20 says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He is our high priest today who intercedes for his people. And not only that, but verse 13 says that he is the victorious king priest. He is waiting the day when his enemies are once for all destroyed. It's very similar to D-Day versus V-Day. You may think of D-Day, June 6, 1944, where, where um, the American troops and their allies, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and, and that was sort of the beginning of the end of Germany that battle, and all of those lives that were lost, it triggered the inevitable headlines that this war will come to an end. This was a mighty invasion. But yet the war still continued. Though the end was sealed, Victory Day did not come until May 8th, 1945. And similarly is what Jesus has done on the cross. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. He has taken the full punishment and wrath of God for our sins on himself. Satan knows he is defeated. But that V-Day does not come until his second coming. When all enemies, Satan, death, all those who are followers of Satan are once for all defeated. And verse 14 summarizes why all of this po- is possible, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Can I ask you, when is the the last time in your heart that you have reminded yourself that being on the winning side, being on the side where you can have the assurance of knowing that your sins are completely uh, uh, atoned for, they are removed is through Christ and that is what brings us ultimate fulfillment in life? And it's not the puny, pitiful things that we are following for these some 70, 80 years of life on this pea-sized planet. Somehow we think that that's worthwhile. You see, we have the confidence Of the gospel, because this new way that Jesus has brought is a completely new covenant. Verse 15 says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, with Jesus' death, he has brought in a better way, a new covenant. The Old Covenant could never change the heart. But God's work through the Holy Spirit does. You see, parents, so many times we are so busy trying to transform the external lives of our kids, of our teenagers, that we forget that what they need is an internal work of the Spirit of God. Wives, so many times you can be so busy trying to change your husband that what you need to be pleading God for is an internal change of the heart that the Holy Spirit must do. Wives uh, uh, or husbands, you may be uh, saying, what am I going to do? I'm trying to lead my home spiritually, whatever the case is, but I can't lead my wife. You need to be saying, God, if your spirit is within her, would you do a work that only you can do? I'm going to be the right example. I am going to to follow Christ myself, but I can't ultimately change the heart of anybody else. You know, that's important for a pastor, for church leaders to realize that's important for us to realize as individuals, because so many times we think, if I can just read the next, uh, if I can just read the next uh, spiritual book at the bookstore or at Amazon, or if I can just do this or do this, well, maybe I'll change. And what we forget is that we need to be on our knees pleading with God to change our hearts. If we ever are a part of God's new covenant, His spirit is at work within us. And he is the one who changes both ourselves, others, and this church. Now that's the longest point this morning, so be encouraged. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. That's the longest point this morning, but that's the quickest thing that we forget is the reality of it. Number two, we can be the church not only because of Jesus's ultimate sacrifice. But we can be the church that we are called to be because you and I, we have been granted access to God's very presence. Under the old covenant, those people couldn't go into God's presence. It was a miracle that God could dwell in their midst Of course, God is is omnipresent. He's everywhere, but in the Old Testament, God's localized physical presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, and once a year, could go in there. And guess what? If he didn't go in there in the right way, he himself would be struck dead. And that is what is, like that emoji with the, with the mind that's blowing, like, that's where verses 19 to 25 come in. Verses 19 to 22 say, in, in the presence of this holy God who is so far above us that none of us dare ever approach him on our own. Because now Jesus' sacrifice has been applied to our hearts if we are followers of Jesus. Verses 19 to 22 actually tell us we can draw near in confidence. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence, this is something to be assumed. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not in and of ourselves, but through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 20 by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. In the temple, there was a beautiful, thick carpet, a carpet, uh, <laughs> veil. That, that, that's, that's my old southern roots coming through. An, uh, a beautiful, thick veil that would Prevent access into the holy of holies. When Jesus died on the cross, we read the crucifixion account, that veil was rent in two, symbolizing that now there was a new way of access to God. And here in the New Testament it says it was was Jesus' body that was torn that we now go through Jesus to enter the presence of God. And if this is true... Verse 22 says, "Let us draw near. Don't stay away. Don't think that somehow that somehow you don't measure up if, if Jesus' sacrifice has been applied to your life." It says, "Let us draw near with a true heart." In other words, the very heart that verse 16 is talking about and verse 17. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Does that describe your Christian life this morning? Look at verse 22, or the middle of verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water. Here we see that we can draw near in confidence because of three reasons in verses 19 and 22. These aren't going to be up on the screen. Number one, because our confidence is solely in Jesus, verse 19 tells us. He's the one that grants us access. And by the way, in verse 19, therefore, brothers, he is the one who has made us family. These people are not merely readers or recipients or even friends. They are family and our brothers and our sisters of this author, as one commentator tells us. Our confidence is in Jesus, verse 19, verses 20 and 21. Our confidence is in the new way that he has provided. That new way through the new covenant that cleanses, does an internal work of cleansing that the old covenant could never do. But our third source of confidence is also a confidence in our common confession. Verse 22. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. We have assurance because we've been cleansed. And then it says, and our bodies washed with pure water. Not only is this a a reference to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but this is also a church-wide reference to your confession. Remember that through your baptism, that was your confession to the church body of your faith. You have identified with Jesus, not only internally because of what he did, but also externally through the waters of baptism. Don't forget that. Hold fast to that. We are to, verses 23 to 25 show us, persevere in confidence. We cling to Christ. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Man, if you need to highlight that phrase, if you need to write that on a three by five card, if you need to, to write that on your hand, if you need to tattoo that on your arm, whatever it is, for he who promised is faithful. Hold Maybe this morning you are tempted to say, you know what? My God is not faithful to his promises. One of two things, or even both, have happened. Number one, which is obvious, you're greatly discouraged, and your eyes have gotten off of God's word and onto your own thoughts. But number two, what may have happened is that you are clinging to the wrong promises. So many times it's easy to, to make God into an, uh, our own image and, and try to say, this is what God has for me. Well, why? Did you find that in scripture? No, because I desire it. No, because that would make sense. No, because if God did this, imagine the power and the glory that he would get from it. You see, are we holding to the right promises that God is faithful and he has done a work of cleansing and transformation into our hearts and he is going to continue that work until the day that we either die or the day that he returns, whichever comes first. But mark it down while you may not be able to chart his path on a map in your life, his promises are always faithful. Yes, he is at work even in the weird, terrible, horrible things that you are experiencing today. Cling to Christ, let us hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, drawing near. Now we begin to see a larger context in which Christ's body is meant to operate. We see a larger context in which we are connected together. We're not connected together for hobbies. We're not connected together to entertain. We're not connected together just to to make each other feel good with no foundational source. We are connected together. Let us, plural, plural, Draw near. Let us, verse 23, plural, hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider, verse 24, how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's the command that we are to stir one another up to love and good works. When you leave uh, on a typical Sunday morning, does it cross your mind? Who was I able to encourage in the truth of the gospel today That's why we're here according to the Bible We're here to to learn more about what the, what Jesus has done for us to grow in our understanding of that and to encourage each other in it That's why we're here So do, do you leave with that check checkbox in mind Or is it all those other things that's kind of like the Hebrews following this outward religiosity void of the heart? Because the only way that we are going to be able to stir up one another to love and good works, and it's not always easy, that's why it says let us consider how to do this. But it's through that connection to the body that we are able to do it. And verse 25 explains more of this command, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. In other words, that is how we stir one another up to love and good works. We are encouraging one another. But it's not just, hey, I'm praying for you. Or it's not just, hey, you know what? Things may get better. No, it is, hey, I know things are bad but let's remember the sufficiency of Jesus even in this situation. Let's remember. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together, even in the middle of the hallway or in the chairs of of this auditorium. Let's pray and let's thank God that Jesus and his sacrifice is sufficient for all things, even what you're encountering today. That is what brings lasting hope. Is that your source of encouragement with each other as brothers and sisters? The incentive here is how much more should we be doing this as the day is drawing near, the day of Christ's return? Last but not least, and I just want to summarize this, we're not going to look at all the verses here. But number three, the reason we can be the church is not only because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, it's not only that we have been granted access to God's presence, and therefore we together are to encourage to together cling fast to our confidence, our confession that confession that we have turned in repentance and faith to Jesus, and that confession that after we have turned in repentance to Jesus, we were baptized in public declaration of that faith, we hold fast to that confession, and we encourage one another in it. But then we can be the church because our lives serve as testimony that Jesus is better. Let me ask you, if your children were to we were to ask your children what is daddy, what is mommy, or what is dad, what is mom most prioritize? What would their answer be? I'd be a little bit nervous. Not to scuff up the newly painted walls. <laughs> Not to get that car dirty that was just took two hours to vacuum all the french fries out of it? Would they say that your life is a testimony that Jesus is better than all those things? Would your spouse say that? You may be single here today and that's not a less than calling. That is, that is uh, just as important a calling as, as the calling to live with your spouse according to the scriptures. Would your friends say that Jesus is better in your life than even that potential husband, that potential wife, that potential car? Verses 26 to 31, they give a stern warning. We're For sake of time, we're not going to read it we must not turn back. The temptation is there every day of our life to reject Christ, to apostatize. We see that happening over and over again in Christianity today. But our lives serve as testimony that Jesus is better because we are called to not turn to to lesser things. Number two, verses 32 to 35, because we live and suffer together, This is interesting. I just want to highlight this really quick in verse 32. In the midst of the temptation to turn back, the author of Hebrews says, but recall, says recall church, the former days when after you were enlightened or after you came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Yesterday's victories don't promise tomorrow's victories. And he's saying, you all endured many things. Don't turn back now. Encourage each other. Remember how you stood shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters firm in the faith. Don't turn back in discouragement. The chapter ends by simply telling us we have to hold fast our confidence to the end. Your trials can seem never ending. Is this ever going to end? Is this person ever going to get it? Is is this ever going to make sense? But verse 37 says, For yet a little while, And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by what? Faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So, two quotations from the Old Testament. And look at this encouragement in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Man, what a beautiful declaration that we can say together as a church body. As members of Covington Baptist Church, we do not desire to be those who shrink Back who fall away. We want to stand in our faith together. That's the importance of the local church. We are a beacon that meets together once a week to remind one another of the gospel, to equip one another to go out into this world, to cling fast to our faith, to not shrink back, to serve together, and to walk hand in hand with Christ. You see, we cling to the Christian community, not because the church is perfect, Not because it's without its flaws, but because we are in this together, we have been bound in Christ. And in that light, we follow the calling that we are called to be the church.